Thanks, Katie. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see those of you who are here in the room and nice to be with those of you who are watching via live stream or even via recording down the road. We're happy that you're with us. Uh, my name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. And this morning we're beginning a brand new study in uh, the book of Matthew, not an entire overview of Matthew. We'll come back and do that in a couple of years, uh, but specifically looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter five this morning. We'll be in the first 12 verses as we sort of kick this off. Uh, if you don't already have a copy of the Matthew Journal, that's, uh, that's been our practice over the last year and a half or so, maybe even two years. Uh, they, they make these great sort of biblical journals that have uh, the scripture on one page and then on the facing page there are blank lines where we can just kind of record what God has said to you, what you're finding in your study and the ongoing pursuit of looking at these texts. And uh, we have a copy of the Matthew Journal for everybody that's uh, participating. If you're uh, if you're somewhere around the world and you can't come and pick one of these up, we'll mail it to you. But if you're local, you can come and grab one. And if you're in the room, hopefully they gave you one on your way in. Now, as we dive into, um, <clears throat> as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, let me see if I can set the series up just a little bit. <clears throat> We're calling the series, Forget What You've Heard. And uh, that's sort of an interesting turn of phrase. But the idea here is that in the Sermon of the Mount, on the, on the Mount, Jesus is reorienting us and reorienting the crowds and his disciples to what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And he's doing that because, as a matter of course, we as human beings tend to establish certain rhythms and patterns. Those rhythms and patterns tend to be built upon tradition, or they tend to be built upon the culture that we live in, or they tend to be built on what we've sort of heard passed on from other people. And in this particular case, as we study the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that several places along the way, Jesus stops and sort of expands what people have heard. We'll see more of that next week than we do in these first 12 verses. But what we are seeing all the way through is that Jesus is saying, you may have one perception about reality. You may have one perception about who God is. You may have one perception about what it means to be a disciple. And what I want you to understand is that your perception of discipleship or your perception of religion or your perception of God's purposes in creating mankind may actually be not wholly what God would say the reality of it is, right? So if we back up to Matthew chapter 4, uh, Matthew gives us a pretty decent summary of the teaching ministry of Christ. He does that in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 17. Matthew says as an overview, kind of a, an overview statement of the teaching ministry of Jesus. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We understand that when Matthew was trying to think of a way to summarize the entire teaching ministry of Christ, this is the way he boils it down into a sentence. He says, Jesus started to teach, and it's not that Jesus would get up in front of a crowd and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then go and sit down. But that that's a decent overview for what the, the thrust of Jesus's teaching message was. Repent, which doesn't just mean to, to uh, give up the bad things in your life. Repent means to change direction. The word repent is literally, I was going this way and now I'm going this way. Jesus's message, if you wanted to summarize it, was turn and go another direction because the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is available. You could be living in the kingdom of God right now is what Jesus is saying. That's the summary. Uh, Matthew will go on to say in verse 23 of chapter 4, he went, through all, he went throughout all Galilee 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So what Matthew says here is not only was Jesus preaching, change and go another direction, turn and go another direction because you could be living in the kingdom of God. The message of Jesus was a message of immigration. You could be living in the kingdom of God. But not only does he preach it verbally, not only is he teaching that in the synagogues and on the hillsides, but he is making it manifest. He's giving a physical demonstration of the reality of the kingdom of God through the miraculous power he puts on display. As he's healing those, as he's casting out demons, as he's making the lame to walk and the blind to see, Jesus is reinforcing the message with physical manifestations of, hey, the kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of this world. All throughout our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be recalibrating, recalibrating what life in the kingdom looks like, what it feels like. And frequently, as we study it together, there are going to be moments where you and I are going to have to go, okay, I'm having to forget what I've heard. I'm having to forget what my tradition says. I'm having to forget what the culture says. I'm having to forget the the normal practice of religion or my normal understanding of what spiritual matters look like. And instead, I have to tune myself to the frequency of Christ so that I can accurately understand what the kingdom of God looks like. Because the kingdom of God is is an upside-down kingdom. It's very different than what we see in the rest of the world, right? Jesus is recalibrating our view. And he's not giving us a list of things here to do. So there there are some action steps, and we'll see that even as we go. But primarily what Jesus is talking about here is not, hey, go and do this. So even in the Beatitudes, which we'll look at this morning... He will talk about meekness and he'll talk about mourning and he'll talk about spiritual poverty. He's not saying go out and find a reason to mourn. He's not saying go out and force yourself to pretend to be meek. What he's saying is an overarching statement about the value system of the kingdom. It's not that you have to go and find a reason to mourn, but as we'll see in our study, rather it's more about who we are. It's more about being a certain way than it is about doing particular things. So don't try and reduce the Sermon on the Mount into a a list of boxes to be checked. Jesus is talking about an overarching value that will affect the way we live, but isn't just a list of moral codes, right? It's not just stuff to do. I went uh, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a... um, had the opportunity to go to a, a video game conference. You guys aren't going to care about this, but it was, it's called BlizzCon, and it's a big video game conference at the Anaheim Convention Center. Uh, back in the days, remember when they used to do things and you could go to them? Remember that? Way back in the olden times when there were things happening and you could go to things? Um, I went to this thing called BlizzCon, which is a, a big conference for a, a video game company called Blizzard, and they make... Uh, World of Warcraft and Starcraft and Overwatch. Well, this is not a commercial for them, but it's to say this conference is a place where all these people come. There's thousands of people that love these video games and they come to this conference. Now, I don't happen to play any of those video games and I had a friend who was going, he had an extra ticket and so he invited me to go. And I will tell you from the moment I stepped foot on the the property at the Anaheim Convention Center, I felt out of place. I felt like there was this whole culture of people who knew things that I didn't know and who understood and cared about stuff that I didn't know or didn't care about. There were people in costumes I'd never seen before, people speaking other languages. I went to a couple of like seminars and in the seminars, the video game developers would announce things and sometimes when they announced things, the whole crowd would like audibly moan, like they were grief stricken. Oh no. Right. And 
here I am in the middle of it going like, I don't know what these people are all so sad about, right? Because it was foreign to me. I was in a foreign place with a foreign culture. But the more I spent time there during that day, the more intrigued I became about this alternate culture, right? The more I watched it and thought, it, these people are so bought in. And it's th- th- this video game culture has so transformed their lives that they would put on costumes and learn fake languages and do all these other things that it was intriguing to me. And when I left the conference, I went and I checked out a couple of their games. The only reason I tell you this story is because as a church, part of our vision for who God's called us to be, the fourth pillar of our vision is the idea of unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity, right? If you've been around for a little while, you've heard us talk about that. Unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is articulating the unblushing oddity of the kingdom of God. He's articulating that that the, the followership of Christ and living in the kingdom doesn't look like the rest of the world. And to the rest of the world, it will seem peculiar. It'll seem strange at first. There are people who walk into our church services or who come into contact with us in our jobs and in our homes and our neighborhoods. And when they understand that our value system is based on who Jesus was, our lives are based on the glory of God and the service of other people. It takes them a while. There's a moment where they're like, this is like a whole other thing. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But over time, what happens is that by coming into contact with the values of the kingdom of God, by coming into contact with kingdom ambassadors, there is created in the heart of other people an interest, an intrigue in the things of God. That's what we mean when we say unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. What we're going to see week after week as we study Sermon on the Mount is the unblushing oddity of kingdom life. We've talked before about the fact that our church is meant to be an embassy. Our church is meant to be an embassy of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God which exists and is being fulfilled on the earth now, but will be completely uh, fulfilled when Jesus returns. We've talked before about the now and the not yet, right? Jesus articulates that here too. That we have the opportunity to be an embassy of the kingdom of God. Where when people come into contact with us, the ambassadors who live and have family in this place that they have the opportunity to taste and see something of God's kingdom before it has been fully realized. That's what we're called to be as ambassadors. And Jesus articulates that well here. So let's dive into these first 12 verses and kind of look at a familiar text. By the way, as we have to do every time, every time we're looking at a familiar text, we always have to remind ourselves to not come in with our presuppositions, right? We're going to look at a text here that that contains a thing called the Beatitudes. And I would guess that for some of you, you go, oh yeah, I've heard this a million times. It was sewn on a doily in my mom's house. I had to memorize it as a kid or whatever. I want you, it's fine to have that training and to have that education. It's great to have that. But anytime we come to the text, we want to look at it afresh so that our presuppositions don't translate the text for us, but rather we allow God to reveal the truth of the text to us afresh every time, right? Here's what it says. Uh, in four, it already said these great crowds are coming. Look at what it says in Matthew 5.1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, before we even look at what he taught, I just want you to see the picture here. There are crowds of people following Jesus and we know many of them are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're following Jesus because they want something from him. 
Later in the Gospels, we'll see, and we saw when we were studying the book of John, that there were people who were following him because they wanted a free lunch, because they'd had their stomachs filled with loaves and fish and whatever. There are always these, these great crowds that follow Jesus, but I want you to see that there, there are basically two different things happening here. He sees the great crowds and he goes to where they are. He sits down in typical rabbinic form to teach and instruct, but his disciples come and sit near him and he speaks to his disciples. So he's teaching disciples. The things he's saying about the kingdom of God here are for the disciples, but he's doing it in full knowledge that there are people sitting around the outside who will also benefit from this instruction. Does that make sense? It's the same thing we do here on a Sunday morning or we do through the live stream or we do up on the parking garage at 5.30 on Sunday nights. We're always gathering together as ambassadors looking to grow and be transformed in the glory of God and the revelation of Christ. That's the main thing we're aiming at here together is discipleship and growth. But we also recognize that in a church service like this, there are going to be people who come or people who tune in or people who show up on the parking garage who don't know Jesus at all. And they're, they're representative of that crowd that's kind of in that outside circle. They're looking on. They're paying attention. They're leaning in a little bit to hear the instruction to disciples because they're intrigued, because they're interested in spiritual things. As a teacher who opens God's word, I'm always holding the same tension, right? I'm teaching to disciples, but I'm recognizing that there are other people paying attention and I have them in my heart and in my prayer as well. You may be tuning in today and you don't know anything about Jesus. I'm excited that you're listening. I'm excited that some of you in the room may not be followers of Christ yet. And I hope that you'll lean in as we listen to what Jesus has to say both to his disciples and by extension to the crowd that's surrounding. He says this, verse 3. Well, verse two, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now before we look at each individual line of this teaching, I want to give you a kind of a broad overview. The first thing I want you to see is that uh, he, there are basically eight principles here. Um, the last one in verses uh, 11 and 12 kind of looks like two, but he's essentially saying the same thing uh, in 11, or excuse me, 10, 11, and 12. He's talking about the, 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 the goodness of persecution, as weird as that. Let's talk about forget what you've heard, right? You've heard that it's miserable and awful to be persecuted. Jesus says, congratulations if you're persecuted. Way to go if you're dealing with persecution, right? You're in good shape. You're well off if you're persecuted. That's the eighth principle here. There, there are eight the first and the eighth, so if you look at verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice the present tense. If you have a, a Matthew journal there, you might circle the word is or underline it. Blessed, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When he says that in verse three, and then also in verse 10, when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of the eight principles here, those are the only two that are currently present tense. So what he's saying is that both the poor in spirit and those who are persecuted, the kingdom of God belongs to them already. That's something that's happening now, right? The kingdom of God breaking in. 
The other six principles in between, and you may have noticed it as I read it, but if you were to even just look at verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. That is a promise. It's a thing that sometimes happens as the kingdom of God increasingly breaks into our world, but isn't necessarily a strict rule for all time. Not everyone who mourns is immediately comforted by God. You may be going through grief and mourning right now, either related to the passing of a loved one or relating to the loss of a job or related to the conflict in our world. And you may not necessarily be feeling comforted immediately. But the idea here is that within the kingdom of God, those who have experienced grief, and we're going to talk specifically about what Jesus is talking about, will experience comfort. In some frames, they experience it now, but they will experience it fully when the kingdom is fully realized at the return of Christ, right? The kingdom of God has already broken in. So there's a now and a not yet. There's a present tense and a future tense that's in in this teaching. And Jesus is doing that on purpose. He's saying the kingdom of God is available to you in increasing measure. And and it will be fully realized eventually. The other thing I want you to know as an overview for this whole section. Is that the word blessed or blessed may not necessarily be... uh, communicating what you think it's communicating. So when we read it and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's easy to sort of think, well, what this means is that God blesses the poor in spirit, right? That God blesses those who mourn. It feels like there is a blessing that God gives to those who meet these qualifications. I want you to understand that in the original language, the idea here is not that God does something to those who mourn or God does something to those who are meek. But the idea rather is the idea of not one God blesses, but rather someone to be congratulated. The idea is of someone who is to be congratulated, someone who is enviable, someone who is fortunate. If you take out the concept of luck, because he's not talking anything here about luck. It's the concept of someone who is well off or even divinely happy. So in some translations, when you look here at the Beatitudes, you look at these, uh, at these principles, it's actually translated, congratulations to the poor in spirit, congratulations to those who mourn, or good news for those who mourn, good news for the meek, right? The, the, what Jesus is saying is not that something will happen to those people, but that people who are poor in spirit, people who are meek, people who mourn, people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they are those who are well off. They are those we should envy. They are those who should be congratulated. They are those who have it figured out. Now, there you go. Forget what you've heard. Isn't that so counter to everything in our culture? Our culture, our culture doesn't say that the poor in spirit are those to be congratulated, that those who mourn are those to be congratulated. We tend to value spiritual wealth or spiritual bravado. Right? Spiritual posturing. We tend to value happiness and confidence and satisfaction. Jesus says, not so. In the kingdom of God, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, they are the ones in the enviable position. And so our minds have to be recalibrated. Let's look, at, let's look just at what it means here. We'll look through each of these in turn. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are those who are enviable. The poor in spirit are those who should be congratulated. What what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What is that? What is spiritual poverty? Well, the idea here is of spiritual bankruptcy. Someone who recognizes that in and of themselves, they have nothing to bring to the table. Someone that recognizes that in and of themselves, they contribute nothing to the conversation. It's interesting. We were just in a study in Ephesians not very long ago. Remember this in Ephesians 2, 
where it says you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know how much a dead person brings to the conversation? You know how much a spiritually dead person contributes to the family? You know how much a spiritually dead person brings to the kingdom of God? They bring nothing. Jesus is saying, if you're poor in spirit, if you feel spiritually impoverished, if you feel spiritually bankrupt, then rather than feeling ashamed, rather than feeling humiliated, rather than letting other people make you feel guilty, rather than beating yourself up or hitting yourself on the back with chains or whatever, rather than hanging your head, if you feel spiritually bankrupt, he says, in the kingdom of God, congratulations, you're spiritually bankrupt. And we go, what? He goes, forget what you've heard. In the kingdom of God, the spiritually bankrupt are in a really good space. Why? Because those who can confess and admit that we are poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished, are in a perfect position to inherit the kingdom of God. That same passage in Ephesians says it's by grace that we're saved, right? Through faith, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think of yourself honestly. Think of yourself with sober judgment. This is so reversed to the way we tend to think in our world, right? Because we kind of feel like, and even, I would say even social media doesn't help this. Because... At the core of us, each and every one of us, when we're being honest, when nobody else is around, when we're just at the base of who we are, we know we're spiritually impoverished. Human beings know we're broken. We know we bring nothing to the conversation and nothing to the table. We know we're spiritually impoverished. But our culture, and and maybe even particularly religious culture, says, fake it till you make it. Put on a good religious mask. Put on a good religious facade. Pretend like you figured some things out. Pretend like you're spiritually wealthy. Pretend like you've got all of this power, right? Don't let anybody know you're spiritually bankrupt. Don't let anybody know you're spiritually poor or impoverished. And Jesus says, forget what you've heard. Because the starting point is to think of yourself soberly. The starting point is to go, I I got nothing, right? I got nothing. And all Jesus is talking about here is not, that, is not that you do anything different, but simply that you admit who you are already, right? Admit who you are already. He says, those who are spiritually poor should rejoice. They're enviable because theirs is the kingdom of God. A prerequisite for living in the kingdom of God is admitting that there is no kingdom of you, right? That there is no kingdom of you. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of God. It's not something to do, but something we already are. I think we as Christians have a hard time with this because we want other people to think we've got something figured out. We want people to see our spiritual game. We want them to see how much we've learned in seminary. We want them to see how spiritual mighty we are, right? And Jesus says, oh, forget that. Forget that. Just own it. You got nothing. You got nothing. And so there can be peace in this for us. There can be comfort for us in this because we're able to just go, yeah, Jesus is right. I'm doing my best, right? I'm doing my best and that ain't much. Look at what Jesus says secondly. Not only does he say blessed or congratulations to the poor in spirit, but verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Congratulations to those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The idea here is not of someone who's lost a loved one. It's not mourning in that sort of temporal sense, but the idea of mourning more broadly, all that has been lost. 
In the same moment that we're admitting our spiritual poverty and our spiritual bankruptcy, we're recognizing that because of our spiritual poverty, we've lost all kinds of good things. We've lost the purpose for which we were made, which is to glorify God and to enjoy a relationship with him forever. Because of our spiritual poverty, the Bible teaches that we're separated from God. It teaches that our communion with God is torn apart. And so there is this grief. I look at my own life and I recognize the places where my spiritual poverty has manifested itself in sin and selfishness and pride and greed and wickedness. And I don't have to pretend like that's not true. Instead, I need to let the weight of all that has been lost manifest in me, weigh on me. That's what the kind of mourning he's talking about here. He says, don't pretend like you haven't failed. Don't forget, like, don't pretend like you're not bankrupt. And instead, let the full weight of what's been lost because of your bankruptcy affect you. I think of uh, the passage in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus tells a story. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he tells a parable. He says, uh, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying, mourn over the fact that you have nothing to be exalted for. Blessed are those. Congratulations are in order for those who mourn, who can grieve the loss, who don't fake it till they make it, who aren't pretending, who aren't putting on a hypocritical show. He says, blessed are those. Understanding the gravity of all that's been lost. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Congratulations to those who recognize all that's been lost. And I want you to watch the way these stack up too. Look at verse five. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Increasingly, as Jesus goes on, he's going to go from an inward understanding to an outward manifestation. And this is the first step in that direction. When he says meek, uh, meekness is not a word that we use in our world a lot. It's not even a concept that we really grasp because so much of American culture is centered around bravado and boasting and posting our very best meal on Instagram and what, like putting out the best face to everyone. But meekness is the opposite of that. Meekness is a gentleness and a lowliness. It's the very characteristic by which Jesus described his own heart. When Jesus describes himself, he describes himself as someone who is gentle and lowly. Here's here's what this means, and watch the way it stacks up. He says, congratulations to those who are spiritually bankrupt. Congratulations to those who mourn or who recognize all that's been lost, who don't pretend like everything's good, right? And there's, there's an internal recognition of what's been lost. There's an internal recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. But that internal recognition should, over time, manifest itself in our interactions with other people. And that's meekness. A true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with regard to others. A true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct to others. Why is it that we see very little meekness in our world? Why is it sadly that we see very little meekness in the life of people who call themselves followers of Christ? It's because either they don't believe that they're spiritually bankrupt or they're suppressing that internal knowledge and pretending like that's not true. 
Anytime a follower of Christ or someone who's striving to live in the kingdom of God, anytime a follower of Christ is prideful or braggadocious or a little bit larger than life or self-promoting, they are lying. There is at the very heart of that deceit because we're spiritually bankrupt, because we're mourning over all that's been lost. And all meekness is, is allowing that internal understanding to manifest itself in our interactions with other people. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, and this will also sort of inform the way we look at the next. He says this in Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, hey, you want to see a cool resume? I got a cool resume. I was born in the right place. I had the right parents. I had the right upbringing, the right instruction. I've made a pretty decent career for myself as being a religious zealot. And yet when I look at Christ, I recognize that all of this means nothing. Instead of bragging about all the things I've done and where I've come from and all the things that the world would look at and say, these things have value. Instead, I'm going to say, rubbish. That's not true. Let me tell you what has value. Chasing Jesus and knowing him with a righteousness that doesn't come from myself because I'm spiritually bankrupt and instead is from him and him alone. He says, that's what I'm chasing. There's a meekness in this. To set aside his resume and to go, I I know who I am. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And everything I am and everything I will be is rooted in my knowledge of Christ. Look at the way he continues in verse 12 of Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I actually think when Paul wrote Philippians chapter 3, he was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. Because this deals with principle 3 and 4 perfectly. Meekness is an understanding of my own spiritual bankruptcy. A recognition of all that has been lost. Right? And it manifests in my interaction with other people. But I'm not just supposed to wallow in my bankruptcy. Right? I can look at my life and go, yeah, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm spiritually poor. And I'm so sad about all the ways in which I've created distance between me and God. All the ways in which I've created distance between me and my fellow man. All of the ways in which I've boasted and bragged about things that are meaningless in the kingdom of God. I can feel that meekness. But I don't just want to sit and stew in my sorrow and my grief. So Jesus brings up a fourth principle here. Look at what he says in verse six. Congratulations. Good news for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He says, it's important that you understand how bankrupt you are, but you don't want to just live there. 
You want to be hungry for more. What does Paul say? I did all this stuff. I am all these things and I could brag about it, but there'd be no point because it's all trash compared to knowing Christ. So what I do is I forget what's behind and I press on towards what's ahead. What, what is he demonstrating there? He's demonstrating a hunger for righteousness. He's demonstrating a hunger for the righteousness that is given to him by God rather than one he earns on his own. He says, I'm not just going to sit here feeling sorry for myself. No, I'm hungry for what God will do to be right with God, to be right morally, to be right socially. It's not enough to mourn over the past. We must hunger for the future. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 22 says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says, set aside what's behind and chase after the other. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians as well. I think sometimes you meet these Christians who are like, um, they're like, they've got the spiritual poverty thing and the mourning and the meekness and they end up just sort of ending up like spiritual Eeyores. You know what I'm talking about? From Winnie the Pooh. You meet them and you go, hey, how are you today? And they go, well, not so good. Have I mentioned I'm spiritually bankrupt? You know, and you're like, all right, I wish I hadn't asked, you know? No, the idea is not, certainly we're aware of it. Certainly that we recognize it, that it draws us to our knees. But then we hunger and thirst for what else God has for us. That's what life is like in the kingdom. Congratulations to those who are hungry for more, he says. Congratulations to those who are hungry for more. So he talks about poverty of spirit. He talks about mourning or recognizing the gravity of what's been lost. He talks about a gentle and lowly heart. He talks about hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied, he says. You hunger hunger after the right things, your stomach will be filled by God. If you're meek... You'll inherit the earth, which is counter to what we think because we think in order to inherit all the things we want, to get all the things we want, we got to climb over everybody and stab everybody in the back and make sure we're constantly sort of puffing up our resume the best we can. Jesus says, forget what you've heard. Forget what makes sense to you in this particular culture you live in. It's the meek that are inheritors. Why? Because they, they, they are like Christ in that. He'll go on to explain the way these things break out into our social life. Look at what he says in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, what is mercy if not compassion for the spiritually bankrupt? Compassion for the spiritually bankrupt. We've talked about this a lot in our church, right? We've talked about humble solidarity. Humble solidarity, right? That is a fuel for us. What is that? It's a recognition that not only am I spiritually impoverished, not only do I bring nothing to the conversation, but neither do you. And neither do any of our neighbors and neither do any of our coworkers and neither do any of our family members on the other side of the country or around the world. There is no one who's a human being who is not broken and flawed. And so the lack of mercy on the part of Christians, right? When we see, when we see people who claim to be followers of Christ, who can't claim to be citizens of the kingdom of God, who claim to be ambassadors and they have lost their mercy, can I tell you what they've forgotten? They've forgotten their own brokenness, first of all. And secondly, they've forgotten the brokenness of others. We can't be unmerciful if we understand that those people are in the very same position that we were, that we are apart from Christ. Mercy comes from a recognition that we are the same, that human beings, all of us, are in need of redemption. How can we have repented if we have no mercy for other people? I talked last week about the unforgiving servant, right? The parable in Matthew 18, where the king forgives a servant of this massive debt, and then that same servant turns around and throttles his neighbor for a small debt in comparison. And the king's like, whoa, how how come you're holding that guy accountable for the debt he owes to you when I didn't hold you accountable for the debt you owe to me? 
How often have we as followers of Christ been unmerciful? We become judgmental. We become condescending. We become arrogant. We become dismissive of other people. And and we've forgotten that, that they are us, that we are them. He says, congratulations to those who are merciful. Envy those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in many cases, they are those who have already received mercy, right? That's, that's where their mercy comes from. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now again, in all of these things, we recognize that there's a now and a not yet. When he talks about purity of heart, he's not talking about moral purity. Because you and I will never be morally perfect until we are glorified, right? When Jesus returns, we will see him as he is, we will be like him, and there will be no more sin in our lives. But short of that, you and I don't have moral purity. So what's he talking about when he says purity in heart? Well, follow the logic. There is a spiritual poverty, a recognition of that in my own life, which, which has a mourning for all that's been lost, which has meekness in my outworkings with other people, and a hunger to change. A hunger for the righteousness that only comes from God. It also makes me merciful in the life of other people. And then he says, congratulations to those who are pure in heart. And he's not talking about moral purity. He's talking about a recognition of honesty and sincerity in our dealings with other people. I think about um, what Jesus says to the Pharisees. What Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, 25, in the midst of a series of woes, he looks at them and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. I think sometimes, and we've already talked about this, but I think sometimes there's a tendency for religious people who don't understand the way the kingdom of God works, who don't understand the culture of the kingdom of God, they've been told, you just make sure you look good on the outside. Make sure you can answer the spiritual questions. When somebody asks you what you've been doing for your quiet time, make sure you've got an answer ready to go. When somebody asks you where you've been donating your money or where you've been serving, make sure you have an answer ready to go. Make sure you keep the outside of the cup and dish shiny and polished. But many times what happens is that we work so hard on that exterior facade. We work so hard on that mask. We work so hard on that sort of Christian uniform or what we perceive to be a Christian uniform that we've missed that what God is actually after is what's happening inside. And that when the inside is correct, when the inside has been submitted to God, the outside will take care of itself. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, by the way. That doesn't work with regular dishes. Kids, if you're paying attention today, you're watching this at home, uh, when your parents ask you to wash the dishes, you can't just wash the inside and the outside will take care of itself. That's a spiritual principle Jesus is talking about. For, for you kids, you've got to wash them both. But in our lives, what Jesus is saying is you've been so busy making sure the outside of your cup looks good that you've neglected the inside. He, he compares it also with uh, whitewashed tombs. He says your lives are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful and ornate on the outside, expensive in fact, but inside are filled with dead men's bones and rot. Jesus says, congratulations to those who are honest and sincere, who are working from the inside out. There's a living life in the open and utterly sincere, a transparency, a, a refusal to wear the mask a refusal to polish the outside for the perceptions of other people. That's what Jesus is saying is enviable in the kingdom of God. A purity of the heart. Not only that, look at the next principle. Back to Matthew chapter 5. He says, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Congratulations to the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Congratulations to the peacemakers. 
We talk about radiant peace around here as a way to reveal Christ. That we reveal Christ in radiant peace. Well, what, what's he saying? Well, basically, if you have mercy for other people because they're broken, in humble solidarity with other people, if you have mercy for them and you have honesty and sincerity about yourself and you're not just putting on a beautifully polished mask, the outcome is peace. The outcome is peace. Where do we find division? Where do we find discord? It's when I have no mercy for others and when I'm posturing in my own life, when I'm more concerned with the outside than the inside. But when I have a purity of heart or an openness and an honesty, sincerity with other people and and I'm merciful towards them in their broken state, just like God was merciful to me, then what happens is peace is afforded. Peace comes from there. And, And he says, congratulations to the peacemakers, what? For they shall be called sons of God. Why sons of God? Because when we endeavor in peacemaking work, when we start to build bridges with other people instead of tearing them down, when we become peacemakers, guess what? We've just enrolled in the same vocation of our father. Just like Jesus was a carpenter in following Joseph's footsteps, we become peacemakers in following Jesus's footsteps. We become like our dad. When we take on peace, we become peacemakers. He says, congratulations to those who pursue peace for they shall be called sons of God. And then lastly, he recognizes that if you're, if you're spiritually impoverished and you're honest about that, if you're mourning all that's been lost, if you're meek, if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful to other people, honest and sincere with a purity in heart, if you're seeking to establish peace between other people, The bottom line is this is going to be so weird. You'll be so weird in our world that people will reject you, that people will hate you for it because it's just not the way we roll. It's just not the way our culture is set up. It's not the value system that we have. Jesus says in verse 10, congratulations to those who are persecuted, blessed or enviable are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now it's worth noting, he doesn't just say if you're persecuted for any reason. If you're persecuted for your selfishness or you're persecuted because you're hateful or because you're an unfriendly neighbor or you're persecuted because you're constantly badgering other people, you don't get to claim this verse, right? But if you're persecuted for living a kingdom life, for aligning your life with the values of the kingdom of God, for forgetting what you've been told and living according to these principles, if persecution comes and it will, he says, congrats, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You persecuted for righteousness? You persecuted for honoring Christ, for glorifying God, for trying to create the most accurate revelation of Christ you can in the world in which you live? If you take persecution for that, good work! Because the kingdom of God is yours. You're in it. You're in it. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus isn't ignorant to the fact that living according to kingdom principles will, will create some drama. That it will create some frustration on the part of people who, even religious people who want to reject this way of life. I will tell you that for, um, for many of us, when we think about what Christianity is, We perceive it as being about spiritual bravado, about happiness, about confidence, about satisfaction. And then we demonstrate judgmentalism and hypocrisy and division and selfishness. But Jesus here is saying, forget those things. Forget those things. That's the way the world works. That's the way the the culture is set up. That's not what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. 
Jesus says that for those of us who live a life that looks like this, there is comfort and inheritance and satisfaction and forgiveness, a clear view of God, adoption, that all things are given to us. And we don't have to pursue them. The blessing is the opposite of what we and our culture think happens to broken, sincere, peaceful, righteous people, right? The reason we don't live like this, the reason why he has to recalibrate our thinking is that almost every, every trend in our world pushes us to pride. It pushes us to brag. It pushes us to ignore our spiritual poverty. It pushes us to judge other people, to divide with others, to puff up our chest and stomp around. And Jesus says, forget that. That's the kingdom of this world. That's the kingdom of yourself. Repent of it. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is available. You and I have the ability to live a life, admittedly, of unblushing oddity. If we live the life of mourning and meekness and spiritual poverty, peacemaking and mercy, hunger for righteousness, if we live this life, you'll stand out like a sore thumb because this is not the norm. But Jesus says, congrats, because that's what life in my kingdom looks like. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us both a recognition of our own poverty, a hunger for the righteousness that comes from you, and a humble solidarity with our fellow man. To see their brokenness is just like our brokenness. To see that the places in which we've been unforgiving or the places in which we've been unmerciful in every case are things that we're holding against our fellow man that you chose not to hold against them but rather to be reconciled with them through the shed blood of Christ. We thank you, God, that you were a peacemaker, that the Lord Jesus came and took our sin upon himself, that he gave us resurrection life by his grace, that peace could be made between God and man. And as we, your ambassadors, live this kingdom life, being who you've called us to be, God, may we be peacemakers as well, regardless of the persecution. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.